Hello and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott and this is your regular NPS update. It's been about six months since we last updated you about what's happening in the world of new psychoactive substances. And with me here today, we've got the experts, Michael Evans-Brown from EMCDDA. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Alex Kratulski from CFSRE. Welcome, Alex. Hello. And Connor Crean from UNODC. Welcome, Connor. Hi, Tim. Thanks. Nice to be here. So let's jump straight into it. We've definitely been seeing some developments in the NPS space over the last six months. What's been happening? What's not been happening? <laughs> well, I mean, from, from a European perspective, I think we've had a, a lot of synthetic cathinones and also in terms of uh, low THC cannabis adulterated with synthetic cannabinoids and well, a range of signals related to potentially sort of urgent events, things like fake medicines containing some of the nitazine opioids and so on. So there's really quite a lot still going on from our perspective. And then obviously, one of the things I guess we'll talk about a little bit later on is this concern of uh, another two outbreaks, uh, not in Europe, but one in Israel and one in the United States related to bridificum in synthetic cannabinoid smoking mixtures, which is obviously something that preoccupies us from uh, a European perspective in terms of planning for such a potential event in Europe. Fortunately, we haven't seen anything like that yet. So you mentioned cathinones there, Mike. Let's let's maybe start off talking about cathinones. That's something we didn't talk about in the last episode, and they're definitely still around. They seem to sort of ebb and flow a little bit. But what's happening with the cathinones at the moment? So at the end, towards the end of last year in November, we risk assessed, or our scientific committee risk assessed, three methyl methcathinone and three chloromethcathinone, which are two very old cathinones, really, from an early warning perspective. They were first identified in 2012 and 2014, uh, respectively. But what we saw from around 2020 onwards in Europe was a reemergence of these uh, substances, or perhaps for the first time, actually, three chloromethcathinone starting to really emerge because when it first emerged in the market in 2014, we actually saw very little of it. But three methylmethcathinone, um, we saw large quantities of it being imported into Europe until around 2015 when it was controlled in China, and then the supply um, dropped off. And then subsequently, um, for a long period of time, we saw very little of it. And then around 2019, 2020, we started to see large quantities being seized by customs uh, once again. We're talking like hundreds of kilograms at a time of highly pure substance. But this time, instead of coming from uh, China, the consignments were coming in from India. So we've seen a switch in the uh, supply chain for at least some synthetic cathinones over the last couple of years, which seems to be making the supply chains for MPS more resilient. Say from a a US or a North American perspective, we are right now seeing a lot of new cathinones. Interestingly, uh, sort of in comparison to what Mike was talking about, we don't seem to see as much methylmethcathinone or chloromethcathinone over here. Uh, right now in the United States, uh, we have seen a couple of cases out of Canada, but in the in the United States, the cathinone that's uh, really dominating the market is dimethylpentalone. So I know dimethylpentalone has been seen now uh, around the world. I know that it's uh, increasing in prevalence down in uh, Australia and New Zealand, but it is right now poised to take over for Eutalone really any day. I mean, our trends for dimethylpentalone are 
rapidly increasing. Our, our identifications of Udalone are rapidly falling off, uh, which is for us here in the United States, a bit of a concern as we enter our spring season and our summer season where we have music festivals uh, and places where these drugs are being consumed, especially after a period of time where uh, these festivals were not happening due to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, that's what we're really keeping up with right now in terms of cathinones, but we're also seeing uh, other cathinones as well. We continue to see um, alpha PVP analogs, things like the three methyl uh, or 4-methyl, 3-fluoro, alpha-PVP, whatever the combination is there. Uh, we're now seeing uh, what is being sold online under the name Cyputalone, um, but really uh, a more accurate name for it would be the N-cyclohexylmethylone. Um, we're also seeing the N-methyl, N-cyclohexylmethylone. Uh, we're continuing to see different uh, butylone derivatives, things like uh, N-propylbutylone. So when it comes to cathinones here in, in North America, where the business is really picking up, um, it's becoming a bit of a challenge when we start to see so many so many compounds that are isomers, especially with dimethylpentalone being an isomer of N-ethylpentalone. Interestingly, for, for a lot of tox labs, to put that perspective into, uh, into this, a lot of tox labs are actually picking up dimethylpentalone by detecting the metabolite, which is pentalone. So at least we've got some mechanisms in action to, to be able to, to detect some of these cases. But yeah, a lot of labs are, uh, are sort of scrambling right now, or I guess picking up and, and trying to trying to develop these methods for dimethylpentalone as it is uh, rapidly increasing. Yeah, speaking of detecting these things, I, I think for tox labs which don't have many cathinones in their standard screening procedures, cathinones are probably the one class of NPS that your normal methods will detect. They're reasonably high dose, most of them, unlike the opioids and the synthetic cannabinoids. If you're doing some kind of alkaline extraction, if you're getting meth out, MDMA, the cathinones are most likely going to come out. So they're probably the easiest ones, I would say, maybe on the benzos, to add into your existing methods. And you'll find them. You'll find If you can put in the an iron that you're looking for, they'll, they'll show up. So uh, if you haven't got many cathinones in your method and you're an analytical toxicologist listening to this, chuck a few more in. Um, the, the MS is available now. You know, uh, MSMS libraries are becoming quite large now, quite extensive with a lot of these NPS mass spectra. So they're quite an easy one to put in there. From what we're seeing at the international level, I think uh, Alex mentioned Utilone. I think last two weeks ago, we had the, the annual meeting of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs and uh, Utilone was, was recommended for scheduling, was voted into the 1971 convention. This along with, with two opioids that were also added to the convention. So from what we've been seeing in regard to substances reported to us, I think some of these were, are also that have been seen in Europe, the most regularly reported substances in the last few years to UNIDC, Three methyl methcathinone, four chloroethcathinone, three chloromethcathinone. I'm broadening the cathinones to, this, to stimulants. We're also seeing uh, some phenmetrazine derivatives still being reported. And these stimulants at a broader level are, these are the largest group of NPS that we have seen reported, primarily cathinones and phenethylamine derivatives. But yeah, they're, they're on the radar for a lot of people, I think. Do we know what drives this diversification in the cathinone market? There's certainly a lot of them, and we keep seeing new ones. I don't know how different the new ones are to the old ones, really, in terms of the effects of them or or potency. Do we know what drives the continued diversification here? I mean, whilst obviously we see you know quite a large number of um, synthetic cathinones in Europe, really, when you look at the seizure data, they're dominated like most MPS, really, by you know maybe a handful, five, six, seven of them. So what's driving, you know, all of this and in part, it's obviously, you know, when new control measures come in, 
usually at uh, international level um, or in producer countries and so on, we start to see uh, new cathinones emerge. But it can also happen, obviously, you know, in countries where these are being used more frequently, let's say, you know, when they get controlled, then we get new cathinones emerging on the market. So one of the things that we were concerned about when we were looking at 3-methylmethcathinone and 3-chloromethcathinone was that obviously 3-chloromethcathinone was a likely successor to 3-methylmethcathinone. And there were certainly signals when we were looking at these two compounds that that was going to be the case. So looking at uh, increasing control of 3-methylmethcathinone in Europe, was that basically going to lead to an increase in 3-chloromethcathinone? And, and that certainly seems to sort of follow when you look at the, uh, the seizure data. So you're controlling one and then you end up with a a new derivative, uh, let's in this case, re-emerging or, uh, you know, on the market rather than being sort of a new, new cathinone. I completely agree with Mike. I mean, I think that's probably driving a lot of it. I mean, but another another part of it is that you have people who are looking for either a high as good as MDMA or better than MDMA. And a lot of times uh, you've got people online discussing uh, how these different cathinones are making them feeling. What's the euphoria? Is there a side effect that's keeping them up late into the night? Uh, and that may be driving people to the next cathinone because the one they previously used had those adverse effects that they didn't want. But that certainly is from what we at least see in drug use forums to be uh, some influence, at least. I think look, if you look at the, the cathinones that were first scheduled probably in Europe and, and internationally, the methadrone, methadone, MDPV, these had, had persistence in the market at that time and for a number of years after that. Maybe it's this, you know, it takes time for international scheduling to trickle, the effect to trickle across the world. And so we see, a, you know, um, an emergence of substances, probably more diverse, less popular than the individual ones, but maybe more diverse. So it's harder to see ones that stand out because there are, there's quite a few, quite a number of them on the market. Well, let's let's move to talking about the synthetic cannabinoids, uh, as you mentioned, Mike. I think last time when we spoke, the China class-wide ban had just fairly recently happened, and we were speculating about some possible things that might come of that. And I think, Alex, you'd started to see a few things already. What's been happening in that space in the last six months? Uh, yeah, so the, uh, the class-wide ban by China uh, went into effect last July. Um, and yeah, I think the last time we spoke, we were sort of speculating what we thought the impacts were going to be. Uh, and now six months later, I think we know uh, in some cases exactly what those impacts are. I think in some areas it's it's uh, still up for debate or, or question. But uh, one thing we cannot question is that we are here in the United States uh, detecting uh, about a new synthetic cannabinoid a week uh, and hearing about through our intelligence streams even more than that. Um, so this class, I mean, certainly they are still synthetic cannabinoids, but they are very much a whole new generation. Um, they look very structurally distinct, which is important because we're finding, or not we are, but uh, some uh, great labs around the world who are doing uh, more of the pharmacological assessment are finding that many of these new synthetic cannabinoids, uh, at least in vitro, don't, don't have very much potency uh, or have very low potency compared to what we were seeing before. So we're seeing, just, just like we were before, different analogs being pirated from pharmaceutical patents sometimes, uh, and being marketed, some of which are uh, more CV2 selective versus CV1 selective. Again, we don't really know that when we're uh, doing our initial identifications, but there's uh, there's a number of new, I guess, subclasses now that have emerged, things like the oxazids, 
these uh, Fubiata compounds, which have a methylene spacer uh, in their linker. We've got all new head groups that are put onto these uh, different core structures. And uh, we're finding synthetic cannabinoids that don't have tails. Uh, it's really been a, a challenge for us as a lab and just trying to, to figure out what's going on. It's sometimes exciting when you get to sit down and do some true structural elucidation to figure out uh, what a new compound you have uh, that you're looking at. Um, I will say one thing that we have always monitored is these online sort of, sort of surface level gray market sites. Uh, and those have become a little bit less useful nowadays because uh, they've moved to these sort of alphanumeric coatings that don't really relate to structure. Uh, and sometimes they won't provide an IUPAC name. So for example, one site is selling um, not JWH compounds, but WHJ compounds with a number after it. Uh, and it's, it's challenging for us to actually figure out what that is and try and predict what we're going to see in the lab. Uh, so we're seeing all of these new synthetic cannabinoids, mostly in drug materials. We have very, very, very few toxicology cases. And I assume that is related to uh, the fact that these have uh, low activity. Uh, but in addition to that, we're hearing different pieces of information from different drug markets here in the United States. We're hearing uh, information out of Philadelphia that synthetic cannabinoids really aren't being used anymore, that some people are saying the supply has dried up. Uh, others are saying that they're not uh, they're not even smelling people using synthetic cannabinoids anymore. We're, we're seeing them less frequently uh, in some of the sample populations that we're testing. So there is no doubt that the class-wide ban in China has had an impact. It's interesting when we look at and compare the synthetic cannabinoid class ban versus, for example, the fentanyl ban, fentanyl moved the opioid market to more potent drugs, to the nitazines, many of which have, have higher potency than fentanyl. Interestingly, this synthetic cannabinoid class ban for the moment has pushed the market to less active uh, and potentially uh, ineffective or, or inactive drugs, which is interesting to compare the two. But that's our perspective here. And, and I'm sure there's been many, many more impacts around the world. I totally agree. I mean, when you look at what's happened in Europe, so between like 2011, 2015, we were seeing about 27 new cannabinoids each year um, emerge on the market. Then following sort of increasing control measures, attempts to particularly clamp down on the on the open trade, you know, in high streets and online of these uh, spice type products. So around 2016, we saw, you know, quite a dramatic decrease in the number of cannabinoids appearing each year, about 10. So that's kind of stayed the same until 2020. And then 2015, we have 15 uh, new cannabinoids that were notified. So it, this may indicate an uptick in the number of uh, new cannabinoids that we're seeing after a period of it being relatively stable, around 10 sort of each year. And just interestingly, from uh, 2020, I know we're kind of early into the year, but we've notified um, eight uh, new psychoactive substances this year, and five of those have been uh, synthetic cannabinoids. And as you said, quite a range of different substances sort of emerging. And in the last six months of 2021, we had four cannabinoids emerge that were closely related to MDA-19, which obviously first emerged in Europe, uh, I think back in 2016. But really, we never saw anything of it again until uh, these recent uh, changes in uh, legislation. So I'm kind of wondering, is the, is the market going kind of like through a period of, as Alex has said, you know, some of these compounds are kind of like lower activity, is that we're going through a period of kind of like imitation and experimentation to see what can be sort of produced and that may sort of hit the mark once again, you know, to get the market to back where it, you know, was. So I think it's going to be very interesting to follow this over, certainly over the next 12 months and see, you know, exactly what does happen and whether the market does settle down again, 
or whether you know we start to see kind of like a, a proliferation of a sort of a more broader range of cannabinoids appearing. And Mike, I would say that uh, that assessment is uh, something that we have thought about too. It does seem right now that uh, manufacturers are developing drugs without really knowing what some of their activity may be. And, and really the humans that are consuming those become sort of their experimental projects, if you will. And uh, and based on their feedback, whether it be through drug use forums or, or how, how much these, these new synthetic cannabinoids are being purchased from gray market sites to the dark web, maybe that's the indication as to whether or not these companies are going to keep producing them. But we definitely seen or have thought about that. Um, another interesting aspect to this is here in the United States, certainly we have many states who have legalized cannabis. Um, so our impact and what the future of synthetic cannabinoids look like here in the United States may be very different from around the world as people may migrate from synthetic cannabinoid use to, uh, to cannabis use. Um, certainly, there are still individuals who prefer synthetic cannabinoid use, but I do think it will be interesting to track how cannabis legalization in different countries and different parts of different countries may have an impact on whether or not the, at least the potent synthetic cannabinoid market comes back, if it ever does. I think that, you know, we have, if we have 1,100 NPS in total reported to us at the moment, 300, the second largest group is cannabinoids, there's 320 of them. They're very diverse. I think maybe the, the early ones that appeared in the market and were around for a number of years, they came straight from literature that was kind of well known. Maybe those that have, have emerged in, in the last few years and the, the direction that we see them, them taking is more of a response to, to control uh, rather than linking to some pharmacological evidence. I think, you know, what, what we've seen in the last one or two years is the, for those substances that have been scheduled uh, internationally 2020 uh, for, for FMDMB Benaka, this is still being reported to us by other countries around the world. The new substances that we've seen, there have been some of the oxazids. We've also seen some pyrazole carboxamides reported to us. But generally, you know, if, if we look at the, the, the alphabet that's used for synthetic cannabinoid nomenclature, if you pick some of these things that aren't necessarily controlled, put them together, that's what likely you might see appearing still for us. So FUBUR144, this has been around for some time, still getting reports of that EMB, Fubinaca, ADB, Binaca. So there's a kind of a, a mix and match of different groups that are that are, that are placed together to, to generate whether or not there's a logic to those, uh, their creation or not, I'm not sure. I mean, I think what Alex was saying about uh, cannabis uh, legalization in the US, I think is really interesting, you know, in terms of the potential impact on the synthetic cannabinoid market. And I was just wondering if you also think that Delta H THC is having any impact on that, because we're kind of monitoring, you know, what's going on there quite sort of closely. And we've seen a few reports, you know, in Europe, and obviously it's linked to, you know, increasing production of hemp and CBD and so on. And we're also seeing kind of like similar trends in, in Europe. So we're sort of thinking, you know, is despite the fact that it's controlled, is it is it likely to take off? And is, is that possibly eating into any of the synthetic cannabinoid market? I, I don't know. Oh, it's a good question. I'm uh, honestly not sure. I will say from our perspective, we do not consider Delta-8 THC to be an NPS because we want to lump it together with those plant-based cannabinoids on their own, well, at least plant-derived cannabinoids on their own. So certainly it's it's something we're still monitoring. We're monitoring um, sort of the impacts of the different legislation that we have here in the United States and, and sort of why Delta-8 uh, has been on the rise from its sort of conversion from CBD and and all of that. And, and we're continuing to try and track some of this in toxicology cases and drug materials as well as when we can. 
from my perspective, and I would have to uh, go back and just look at this a little bit more. From my perspective, I haven't heard many people saying they've moved from synthetic cannabinoids to Delta-8. Uh, certainly, there is a large population who is uh, able to buy Delta-8 legally uh, and consume it. Those are generally people who are consuming Delta-9, though, prior. We have a number of head shops, even just here in the state that I'm I'm in, we have a number of head shops that are selling CBD and, and Delta-8, and people can go in, buy it. Uh, they don't need a medical uh, marijuana card. They don't need any sort of credentials, obviously, than just being of age. So it's definitely uh, something interesting to think about. But again, there's just so much going on in that space. And it's not just the isomers of THC. It's all these other uh, acetate and uh, all these other variant uh, in the chain and the tail uh, the tail chain. And there's, there's just so much going on in that space that, uh, like I said, we try and lump that outside of NPS to give it its own space. And it will be interesting to see what the what the future of that really looks like. Not to change the topic away from NPS, but, you know, the, the cannabis issue is something that, that, that has been a concern in the last number of years. And one of the, the main things that we do for the laboratories is the manuals and guidelines. And we've just launched like two weeks ago, a, re- a revision of the cannabis manual. So this like uh, takes into account identification of low quantities of Delta 9 and or Delta 8 and discrimination between the different isomers. Um, so it, it's it's something that when we, we get this information that we see that it's, it's a challenge faced by the laboratories, we're lucky enough to be able to have this process in place that we can update the manuals and guidelines that we have. So, um, yeah, it's not separate from MPS because although we haven't seen reported to us directly, mixtures of synthetic cannabinoids in, in cannabis, but, you know, it's probably only a matter of time in some cases. I mean, what's interesting in Europe is we've been doing some thinking about this. And, you know, obviously, from a European perspective, we have a legal definition of what a, an MPS is. You know, very basically, it's, you know, a substance that's not controlled under the UN conventions, but may pose similar public health threats, social threats to substances that are controlled under the sort of conventions. But what, what we've seen, obviously, in the last 12 months, 24 months, so on with things like um, low THC cannabis being adulterated with synthetic cannabinoids, we've seen in some areas an increase in uh, THC edibles, but also very similar edibles containing synthetic cannabinoids. So, I mean, nobody knows what they're going to get there, but also um, a little bit of Delta H THC. And interestingly, a Swiss drug checking service the other week reported what I think a first for me is low THC hash containing Delta H THC and a synthetic cannabinoid. So obviously, you know, we keep things sort of separately from a from a legal sort of perspective. But I think that it's becoming increasingly blurred about, you know, between the controlled drug market and the NPS market. And certainly what we're also seeing more generally with that in Europe is the fact that these two markets, I know we always say it, but they are becoming increasingly integrated, at least in, in Europe. And it's often quite difficult to disentangle those and how they seem to be becoming sort of more synergistic in a way. Do you think that's something that users are wanting or is this just something that they're not even expecting, but they're just getting these synthetic cannabinoids in their cannabis products? So every everything that we have right now is that this is totally unexpected to them and including the street level dealers as well. They're not aware of this. So certainly we had reports from colleagues in the Netherlands that in some cases, this low THC adulterated cannabis had actually penetrated the, uh, the some of the coffee shops. And when you look at all the kind of like reports, but also some of the recent publications that have come out, is that a lot of the clients of these drug checking services that have been really instrumental in identifying this issue, 
monitoring this issue and obviously alerting consumers is that in some cases they had adverse events after uh, smoking this stuff and then sent a sample for submission. In other cases, it was kind of like, you know, there was a suspicion that it might not be sort of cannabis. So really everything that we have suggests that users and street level dealers are, or not necessarily all of them, but are unaware of the fact that this is adulterated with synthetic cannabinoids. I'll say from from the perspective that we have here, at least in our uh, in our area, working with our public health departments, uh, is that the population using cannabis and the population using synthetic cannabinoids are very different. Uh, they're not the same population. So yes, uh, I mean we don't see this issue here in the United States. We've been uh, we've been monitoring for it. I don't think many labs um, are actually looking for it for us to really know if it is an issue in the United States, because most labs, if they're doing uh, testing for THC and cannabis, say. Uh, may stop there. They may not even be concerned with whether or not uh, synthetic cannabinoids may be present. So yeah, the populations are different. So this would definitely be from from our perspective of what we've heard, an unsuspecting population that would be consuming synthetic cannabinoids. And and of course, that can be dangerous in, in, in a lot of ways because of the adverse effects that synthetic cannabinoids pose. Uh, and if you have people who use drugs that aren't familiar with those adverse effects, it can certainly be detrimental from from a number of different perspectives. And then we have, you know, other issues of contamination as well. It was interesting in the last discussion we had that we were, we just happened to bring up the uh, Prodificum contaminated synthetic cannabinoids that occurred in the United States, I think back in 2018. And it was only within a few months after recording that episode, there were another couple of incidents around the world. Yeah. What's that about? I mean, so now we've had three outbreaks, two different continents, and we still don't know why the Prodificum is ending up in these smoking mixtures. Um, you know, is it accidental um, during production or is it deliberate in terms of trying to potentiate some pharmacological effect? You know, we've come up with lots of different, I guess, great ideas about why this may be happening, but we don't seem to be anywhere further down the road about why, where, and when it's happening. And it's obviously a huge concern when you look at the numbers of people who've been severely poisoned and, uh, and in terms of uh, fatalities related to this form of uh, contamination. I think it's really important, you know, we talk a lot about sort of preparedness and we talk about, you know, these are the kind of big bang events that hopefully never happen. If they do, they tend to be sort of rare, but when they do, they have this massive impact that needs an immediate response. And then we kind of really need to be sort of prepared for that. So we've been obviously looking at this and one of the things um, following the outbreak in Israel is that we issued a, a risk communication or an alert to our to our network about this and sort of going through the experiences of not just what happened in Israel, but also what happened in the US in 2018, particularly in Illinois, um, in terms of the experiences of public health and law enforcement agencies sort of working together, but also in terms of their investigation of the outbreak and their response to the outbreak. So one of the key things, you know, here is, can we actually identify uh, Bredificum in, in seizures or collected samples routinely? Is it screened for in biological samples in a, in a routine way and so on? So how quickly would we be able to identify you know, one of these kind of events. And of course, one of the, one of the key things when you look at the, um, the lessons learned from these outbreaks so far is that poison centers have been instrumental in terms of having that sort of helicopter view and being able to uh, get reports from healthcare professionals in that, you know, they've had these unusual, unexpected cases of bleeding and then be able to put this kind of like puzzle together and then obviously alert relevant public health and law enforcement agencies. Co-occurrence is a huge thing, you know, multiple substances in a sample. You know, if we want to look at 
first, are there other MPS that are present in a sample? Are there other controlled substances that are present in a sample? Maybe other uh, psychoactive medicines that are in samples as well, um, as well as toxic adulterants. So it's a complex issue that, that needs to, to be looked at a little bit more. And I think some of the important information that gets reported to early warning systems is it's not just this substance, but it's this substance in this form, in a tablet, with this logo, but with these other components present. So until we, we, we collect and look at all of that information together, certainly by then we get a, a concrete picture of what, what's going on and how rapidly it evolves. And in particular, then looking at the information in combination with that from toxicology laboratories to see uh, are they what are they seeing in conjunction with the what we're seeing as identified in, in powders and tablets, et cetera. Yeah, I would say just to give a uh, a huge shout out to well, at least our the way our forensic testing is set up here in the US, I do feel like our crime labs and toxicology labs are best suited to take on the identification of these outbreaks when they happen to really know that uh, there is a, an anticoagulant present in these synthetic cannabinoid products. Because a lot of times, I mean, some of this testing can't be done at the hospitals. It can't be done by, uh, unfortunately, by public health partners. So we, as the forensic community, are, are always willing to uh, sort of step up and help out. But yeah, Mike, I agree. At, at what point does this become a trend and not an accident? We've now had these different outbreaks, as you mentioned, the outbreak in Illinois in 2018. And now, uh, this most recent outbreak uh, here in Florida, and they both contained verdificum. So, I mean, there are other anticoagulants out there. At what point does this is this no longer an accident? I will say that there is an investigation currently going on in Florida, of course, uh, trying to figure out what happened. And I really hope that they're able to uh, sort of uncover some of this information that we're interested in. From what I have heard, it does seem like this was related to a single product. So whatever that means, I mean, there's there's different ways that you can interpret that, but it does not seem like it was sort of a widespread issue and across multiple products, it does seem like it was more of a, a localized product. Uh, but yeah, the issue is it's certainly alarming. I mean, it's very alarming, I think, for clinicians who certainly aren't expecting these people to be walking into their emergency department. And it's alarming for public health just to hear that people are bleeding from certain areas or or they won't stop bleeding depending on uh, depending on what has happened to them. But, but yeah, I really hope that that we get to the bottom of this and understand this is one of the combinations that I I still have very little uh, understanding of. If there's uh, if there's people who are listening and and our Twitter users, if you want to tweet out at at us at me or Mike or Connor or Tim and and let us know what you've heard, it would be of interest because clearly, I mean, there's some drug combinations that that may be a, maybe uh, questionable to us that we can't wrap our heads around, but they're certainly not as impactful as as this combination. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we think about it, it's quite incredible. But the outbreak in 2018, you know, was the the largest ever outbreak recorded of uh, bradificum poisoning, and it involved MPS. It involved synthetic cannabinoids, and that I don't think. I mean, when you look at some of the sort of more recent papers before the this outbreak, looking at um, health security concerns about you know the use of bradificum as as a agent uh, for terrorism or so on and stuff like that. Nobody ever considered the fact that it would be NPS and synthetic cannabinoid smoking mixtures that would be the cause of these um, these big outbreaks. So I, I think that there's a lot uh, that we need to learn about what you know really what is going on here and really make sure that our partners in poison centers are really fully integrated into uh, into early warning systems. And I know that they are in a lot of countries, but if, if your early warning system doesn't have a poison center on board, then I would uh, recommend that you definitely get in contact with them because I know that many of them want to really sort of engage on these kind of issues. 
Okay, let's switch gears to another topic. We're seeing a resurgence in research on psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin for use in various therapies. And we've seen in the past that an increase in prescriptions of a certain class of drugs can lead eventually to an increased black market demand for those drugs and then eventually to analogs, which aren't covered by legislation as people seek uh, other things which they can get. I wonder what the potential for this is happening with the psychedelic drug classes over the next decade. Any thoughts on that? I'll say that we've had a lot of uh, interest from some of our clinical partners here in the U.S., just learning more about psychedelics. I mean, there's been a number of presentations that have been given at national conferences. We've had uh, people reach out to us to learn about uh, sort of the psychedelic side as it relates to NPS. Um, Our program actually doesn't see many psychedelics, probably for a couple of different reasons. Unlike cathinone, psychedelics can be one of the harder classes to test for depending on concentrations or amounts in samples, especially when you look at a topic like this where where some of these drugs are being used for therapeutic benefit. They may be used in microdoses. There are some things that that just won't uh, sort of play well with some of our analytical uh, instrumentation. I will say it'll be interesting to see uh, sort of what happens with this class. And in, in the United States, there is, I mean, there certainly is a, a psychedelic market. Um, it will be interesting to see if that that does or does not pick up. I'm not sure I have necessarily a good enough opinion on it one way or another, but I hope that we're here to to help answer any public health or uh, or any uh, questions that our that our clinical partners have. Yeah, I mean, in in Europe, obviously, you know, we we've seen quite a number of uh, psychedelic uh, MPS emerge in uh, recent years, but overall, quite limited in terms of the number and quantities um, sort of being seized. But there is, like Alex was saying, there is a market in Europe, but I don't think anybody has a sort of a good understanding of the size and scale of that right now and, and whether it's kind of more along the lines of kind of, um, you know, psychonaut experimentation, those interested in self-therapy and so on. I think that it's an area that we really need to have a better understanding of. There's always a potential for as as this kind of therapy becomes sort of mainstream for it to become a fad. And then obviously from there, you get that uh, diffusion of it and sort of becomes sort of more mainstream. But at the moment, I don't think we have a very good understanding uh, aside from what we're seeing uh, on the MPS market, yeah, well, but we see for for either hallucinogens or dissociatives within this group, um, we haven't seen the reports over the year huge increases or huge decreases. Kind of a, a steady reporting of substances. There's, there is quite a few LSD derivatives that have appeared in the last number of years, as well as um, some phencyclidine substances and quite a few tryptamines. But these have been around for a long time. You know, and I think one thing that's interesting sometimes is that in parts of the world, maybe where traditional uh, substance use is different than the NPS use. For example, I think some of the hallucinogens tend to be quite popular in South America. Maybe the traditional drug use that their drug availability they have there is very uh, different. So this is this is something that, that, you know, one reason to sometimes understand why certain things emerge or, or appear in certain parts of the world. And after, you know, when the three main N-bomb substances were scheduled quite a few years ago now, the, there's been some divergence in the substances within that group. But yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting group, group and sometimes a gray area between the stimulant hallucinogenic properties. So sometimes classification of substances is quite tricky as well. So it, it's something to always keeping an eye on. 
Connor just mentioned some of those fencyclidine type analogs. I did just want to, to bring up that we here in the United States, we are seeing an increase in tenocyclidine uh, initially as a mixture of PCP and TCP. Uh, but we are actually now seeing tenocyclidine as sort of its own product. We've seen cigarettes dipped in strictly tenocyclidine, no uh, fencyclidine. So um, it's an interesting finding that that we have. I mean, there's uh, some literature to suggest that tenocyclidine is uh, more potent than, uh, than PCP, not overwhelmingly more potent, but um, it's something that we're monitoring here. We do consider TCP to be an NPS. Although, Mike, based on your definition, I don't know if it falls under the conventions or not. So I'm not sure if you guys do, but I just... Uh, uh, something that I wanted to throw out there. We, I mean, we see a few PCP analogs, but not really any level of use that would be, you know, significant at this stage. I mean, what we do, what we are seeing, obviously, is a an increase in the number of ketamine-like MPS, in particular, two fluorodesichloroketamine. In recent years, we've seen, you know, an increase in uh, the number of seizures and acute poisonings and so on. But I think the, you know, for PCP derivatives, not not so much in Europe now. If you think, if you think of many of these substances that, that mimic substances under international control, especially within niche markets in a sense, that there's probably um, a recognition from the literature that there was a lot of encyclopedia derivatives that were around in the 50s. And, and so there's probably a likelihood that people would go back to the literature then and find ones that, that they realize are, these are easier to make or these are as potent as we would like them to be. So there's probably a couple of different reasons why these other substances that were controlled like some time ago are starting to reemerge as well. Okay, well, look, just as we uh, bring this discussion to a close, let's zoom out a bit. This year marks 25 years since the first legislation was introduced in Europe around NPS. What are some of the, the big picture lessons that we've learned over the last 25 years about tackling these drugs? Well, I, I think that, really a lot of the changes have been unanticipated you know they've simply just not been expected it's easy with hindsight to sort of see the changes in the market so we discussed last time how you can break the uh, the mps phenomenon in europe into three distinct time stages where you have but you know from 2007 sorry uh, 1997 to 2007 you have this period of esoterica and imitation where you know you've got mainly sort of stimulants and some tryptamines appearing largely from TCAL and, and PCAL and so on. And then in towards the end of 2007, you see for the first time actually spice being seized in Europe and mephedrone. But I don't think anybody really had an idea about what was really going to happen with these substances. And um, it's not until you sort of move from 2008 onwards where you see this explosion, the legal highs uh, market that really, um, you know, this was like perhaps the defining era of MPS where you had this explosion in the number of substances and products and uh, obviously new ways of, of selling it, particularly through the internet and also selling it, you know, in sort of high street shops in some cases and so on. So again, I mean, did, did anyone really see like the spice phenomenon coming? You know, for, for many years, there was kind of like rumors going around about these, you know, these herbal smoking mixtures that contain natural products, but gave like a really good cannabis-like effect. This is like going back to like sort of 2004. And then it's not until the end of 2008, where you have the two groups in Austria and Germany, you know, identifying JWH018 in there. And I, it took, I think it took everybody by surprise. Um, and... I think that the MPS market sort of, you know, continues to do that. So I think one of the key things, if, if you have such a highly dynamic, unregulated market, what you actually have to have is really strong early warning systems so that you can identify these compounds appearing on the market early on 
and then be able to sort of monitor them, not just in terms of seizures, but also in biological samples, and then also obviously doing related sort of epidemiological work. So I guess if you want to say like, you know, what are the kind of key lessons for this is really that we have to continue to build and strengthen our early warning systems and our response systems. Because, you know, often we talk about in terms of preparedness, you know, you should expect the unusual and the unexpected. That's a lot harder in reality if you don't have strong monitoring systems. And at the heart of that are, you know, the forensic and toxicology labs who are able to screen for these kind of compounds. So for me, I guess that's one of the key things over the last, you know, 25 years is that we have to have these systems that are capable of being able to identify and monitor, you know, surveillance, typical sort of public health surveillance. And then also we have to have systems that can respond to developments in the market. So, you know, with control, first of all, sort of trying to cut down on the open trade of these substances and then coming in with either um, changing uh, national drug laws or strengthening them or in terms of MPS specific sort of legislation. And it's hard to say, um, you know, when you, when, you know, people always say, well, correlation isn't uh, causation and so on. But when you look at the increasing number of control measures and the impact that has um, ultimately on, uh, on a drop in the substances reported in Europe, you can see that it, it does have an effect. I was just thinking that, um, what, what I've noticed in the last 10, 15 years is that forensic chemists and forensic toxicologists needed to re-educate ourselves. And that is a continual thing. You know, I think that we've got to the stage now where, where we have a greater understanding because we don't, we're not looking at a small number of substances. We're looking at a bigger group of substances. So we need to look at these things from different angles, from different specializations in order to have that understanding and have that, as Michael said, that, that contribution going into early warning systems from those different perspectives, from specialists in those different perspectives, so that we, we know uh, more about what's happening and what, what could happen next. I think one of the things that related to the international control and international scheduling is that, that this is voted upon by member states. So member states need to allocate sufficient resources for forensics in their countries to continually allow the, the, the personnel to, to get trained, to get educated, to have appropriate equipment, to be able to keep up, we don't we don't we educate ourselves to stop. We educate or we continue our education to keep learning. So I think once we uh, commit to that, it's not something that stops very easily. No? One of the very practical problems that uh, forensic labs have is when can we take NPS out of our methods? You know, are the JWH drugs still? important? Do we care about them anymore? Because there is a, a limit for a lot of labs, especially if you're doing targeted kind of screening. I know, Alex, you're doing more untargeted screening uh, with a lot of your work. And, and we do a bit of that as well, but not everyone is. Some labs are doing very targeted screening and there's a limit to how many NPS you can look for in a method. So when you've got all these new ones coming out, when can you make that decision about when to take some out? I do think that it likely comes down to uh, a call on an sort of an individual jurisdiction basis. Uh, even here in the United States, what's best for the Northeast is not what's best for the South, uh, is not what's best for the for the West Coast. So I think a lot of labs need to evaluate sort of where they are and, and what their drug markets look like. Um, that means toxicology labs and chemistry labs working together. That means with uh, working with sort of your customs agencies, understanding what's coming into your country or into your uh, jurisdiction or location and, and what's going out. I do think that also there's, there's really two sides to this. 
as as Mike was talking about early warning systems, every early warning system needs a lab that is doing good surveillance work. So you need a lab that while yes, you may not see 90 or 95% of what's in your database, you need to have that capability of being able to find those things when they do pop up. Uh, but for toxicology labs that are running uh, more routine testing where, where you're looking to really identify a, a cause or a manner of death, I think that having those smaller scopes is okay. Uh, and then maybe forwarding on to that more expanded testing when you don't have something that can be identified as a cause of death. So I think there's there's really the, the two sides of it. Uh, I think that for from our perspective in the United States, if people are asking us, should we still be looking for the JWH compounds? I would say no. For now, I'm uh, entitled to change that opinion <laughs> in the future, but I would say for now that uh, labs don't need to be looking for those that you should really focus on mostly, honestly, the NPS that we've seen in probably the last year or two. I wouldn't go back uh, much farther than that. Certainly, again, there are things that will reemerge and hopefully you can have an expanded uh, scope of testing or some sort of surveillance program that can catch them and then that information can reflex into you adding it back into your method. But that's sort of how I would view it and, and would suggest uh, that it be set up. One of the things I think that we get from uh, having laboratories contribute to early warning systems is not just the, the new, new things that come out, but also the things that they're no longer reporting. So as an early warning system, people, we need to provide information to the labs on the things that aren't appearing anymore. And also the labs need to have a look at the information that they can find from their early warning systems to, to dig into the data a little bit more and see the, the substances that are appearing uh, nationally, locally, regionally, that are disappearing as well. So then this this would help make some more educated judgments on, on the, the next steps for adding or removing substances from, from methods, et cetera. Yeah, I think as Alex and Connor said, I think it's very context specific, you know, depending on the, you know, your area, your geographical area. I mean, just to sort of put some sort of context in 2020 in Europe as a whole, we uh, or the member states identified 400 uh, MPS that had been previously reported um, so we're currently monitoring about just over 880. So out of that, we're seeing about half each year. But obviously that varies hugely. You know, we see some in much larger quantities and then a, a lot more of them in very, very small quantities. And of course, then that's the whole of Europe, you know, aggregated. So you need to sort of drill down and see what's happening at uh, national and more sort of local level as well. I think one tool that is going to prove to be more and more useful for what you're talking about there, Alex, is retrospective screening, which I know you've done a bit of that in your lab. We've done a bit as well. That relies on you gathering the data at the start, obviously, but for a lab which is doing more routine screening, you don't necessarily have to look at all your data at the start. You can look at a small segment of your data for the normal things you're looking for, but if you can keep that data, then you can go back and look at the previous 12 months or previous two years and... As you say, then if you see something that you thought had disappeared, maybe it's re-emerging again, okay, put that back into the main body of your screening. So I think that's going to be something that's going to be a really important tool for toxicologists and chemists to use. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks very much, guys. This has been another great discussion. Very useful. Thank thanks, you. Tim. Thanks, Tim. And I look forward to speaking with you again later on this year. And we'll see what happens six months from now. <laughs> <laughs> Expect the unexpected.
Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.